Hello, everyone. I'm Alessandra, your Sexual Assault Safe Haven podcast host, and I'm so happy you're here. On this podcast, we'll be talking about recovering from trauma and sexual violence, reporting sexual violence, safe spaces, and more. I want to share some of my personal experiences to inspire you to use your voice and illustrate that you are valid. I also want to create a community where you feel safe, heard, and understood. And if anyone is in need of help right now, the RAIN Sexual Assault and Abuse and Sexual Violence National Hotline is 800-656-4673. Okay. Hi, everyone. Today, I will be interviewing Dr. Perger, who is a residential physician in the Department of Neurosurgery at Stanford University. Hi, Dr. Perger. Can you please give a brief introduction of yourself and a little bit about what you're researching? Sure. So, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a resident physician in my sixth year out of seven training in neurosurgery at Stanford. Um, I also did my MD and PhD at Stanford in neuroscience and originally grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I've lived here for about 13 years now. And I am interested in becoming a functional neurosurgeon. And what that means is it's a branch of neurosurgery that deals with using brain stimulation and other interventions to not necessarily change the structure of the brain like other neurosurgeons do, but to change the function. So how the brain actually works and how the networks within the brain are communicating with each other. So we do things like implant stimulators in the brain. We record from the brain using electrodes we implant temporarily in the brain. And we do interventions that are meant to 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 change how these networks are talking to each other for neurologic and, and sometimes even psychiatric illnesses. So my specific research is focused on trying to learn about how the brain works and disorders of, of, of brain networks, so psychiatric illnesses, and also disorders of consciousness, and try to refine some of these therapies to work better for those kinds of conditions. That's really interesting. Can you tell me a bit more about what led you to pursue neuroscience and neurosurgery, and maybe what kind of sparked your interest in specifically investigating these types of treatments and kind of the mental health aspect of neuroscience as well? Yeah, I've always been interested in science. And in high school, I, you know, I, I dabbled in biology and, and physics and chemistry, and I couldn't really decide what to focus on and what to major in in, in college. I'd settled on physics because I thought it was, you know, the most interesting. But then I took an AP psychology course in my senior year. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And the parts of it that I thought were the most interesting were the chapters that focused on the biology of how the brain works and how we think something in the brain, physically in the brain, might underlie some of these, these conditions that psychologists and psychiatrists try to help people with. And when I got to college, I started out as a physics major, but I actually quickly switched to neuroscience because I couldn't shake this idea that the most important part of what makes us human, everything that we, we do in terms of talking and walking and thinking and feeling all happens inside the brain. And mm -hmm. I knew that I had to dedicate myself to that. And at MIT where, you know, I went for undergrad, everything is engineering focused. So 
everything is, is, is you, do, you, do, you do everything with your hands. In fact, the motto is mens et manus, it's mind and hand. And I thought that there would be no better way of, of embodying that motto and embodying all the things that, that I wanted to learn about than becoming a neurosurgeon, where I got to work with my hands every day. But what I got to work on was the brain, which is, I think, the most, you know, the most interesting part of the human body and something that, you know, that excites me really every day. Mm-hmm. That's actually interesting, especially for me as I'm applying to schools and whatnot and doing like interviews. I also can relate to like in terms of the AP psych course. I do think that it definitely helped spark my interest more in neuroscience as well. And I think that the brain is just a very interesting thing that like I really want to understand more. So I definitely resonate with you there. Can you tell me a little bit more about deep brain stimulation and how deep brain stimulation works? Sure. So deep brain stimulation is one of the most common interventions that we do as functional neurosurgeons. And it's often referred to as a pacemaker for the brain. Now, what that means is that in deep brain stimulation or DBS, we implant usually a pair of electrodes in specific brain areas that delivers a current to change something about how those brain regions are working. And the first indication for DBS was Parkinson disease. And what we know about Parkinson is that there are abnormal brain rhythms in the centers of the brain that deal with motor function. And these abnormal electrical patterns prevent that motor system from working correctly, and they cause the typical symptoms we associate with Parkinson's disease that are things like tremor, rigidity, and slowness of movement, and problems with walking. And we're still working out the precise mechanisms of exactly why these things happen. But what we do know is that when we use DBS in specific brain regions that seem to be involved with, with Parkinson's disease, we can stop some of these symptoms from happening. And for many decades, this was a complete mystery as to why this was happening. We didn't know if the, the current we delivered through these electrodes was actually stimulating the brain or, or inhibiting the brain. It, it was really hard to understand, and we still don't know the exact answer. But we're starting to work out that the pair of electrodes we implant in, in the brain in Parkinson's disease delivers this ongoing current electricity, which disrupts these abnormal patterns, and it allows the brain to resume its normal activity patterns. So in a sense, we're not really, quote unquote, stimulating, we're inhibiting the pathologic activity that causes some of these symptoms. Now, of course, for something like the motor system, we've more or less understood the basics of how that works for a few years now, at least maybe even decades. But unfortunately, it's less clear how it works in, in other conditions like, you know, mental health disorders. So there's a lot of research still going on into that. So there's more kind of research going on into like understanding exactly how it's working inside of the brain, correct? Right. The specific mechanism of why the electrical current we deliver does what it does is it might be surprising, but it's really not quite clear yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just beginning to, for example, model the electric field that gets created at the tip of these electrodes. If you remember from physics class, you know, electric field kind of spreads out from a source in a a very specific pattern. 
And what we don't yet know is how many individual brain cells are even within this electric field. Are we activating some of the neurons that are near the center of the field and maybe inhibiting some of the neurons at the periphery of the field? How does the different density of the the physical structure of of brain cells or the, the white matter, the axons that sort of connect brain cells, how does that affect how the current spreads? So there's a ton of stuff we don't really understand about it. We just know that when we implant electrodes in a certain area, we think is involved with a certain disease and deliver usually high frequency stimulation, we can inhibit some of these abnormal activity patterns. And that's sort of, you know, the gist of, of what we know. It's sort of silly, but there's a lot of work that's left to be done to really understand why these things work the way they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's kind of like breaking those neural pathways and those neural circuits that kind of lead to those like specific thoughts or those abnormal, irrational beliefs, I guess. Yeah, that's one way to think about it. And and it's interesting you brought up irrational beliefs because that is an area where we really don't know that much yet. We're just starting to characterize some of the brain networks that are involved with with emotion regulation and, and things like, you know, what causes delusions in the brain. We, we really don't know the answer to that. And that's one of the primary things that's keeping us from being able to adapt some of these technologies to diseases like mood disorders, like depression or, or psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. Yeah. And kind of along with that, it seems like we still don't know exactly how this is all working in the brain, how mental health is really working in the brain. But as of right now, and from like a neuroscience point of view, can you tell us a little bit about how different mental health disorders, maybe in general, kind of work in the brain? Yeah, this is one of the central questions of our field. And many researchers have spent entire careers trying to answer this. You know, mental illness has always been around. And from the very Mm -hmm. first written records of early civilization, there's always been mentions of people, you know, quote unquote, possessed by demons or bad humors or what have you. And many of the earliest human remains have evidence of holes drilled into their skulls or or something we call trepanation. And we can only presume that was to release some of the evil spirits and and cure what we can assume was mental illness. Mm -hmm. And even today, psychiatry often distinguishes between psychiatric illness and what they call organic brain disease or some physical factor in the brain that's causing the psychiatric symptoms. What we're learning, though, is that that distinction is probably artificial, as in every behavior, every thought, every emotion we have is generated by and represented in the brain. And there may not really be such thing as mental versus physical illness. The distinction might just be an illusion because everything comes down to normal versus abnormal patterns Mm -hmm. of activity in the brain. So if we dive into that just a bit further, your brain has about 100 billion brain cells or neurons and 100 billion glial cells, or the cells that surround and nourish and support the neurons. And the cell bodies of the neurons make up the gray matter in the brain and the axons or those long skinny projections that connect the cell bodies to their synaptic terminals across which the neurons communicate with other neurons using either electricity or or molecules called neurotransmitters, those axons are the white matter. And groups of neurons involved with similar tasks are clustered together in regions corresponding to what they do. And then those regions are further grouped into the different lobes of the brain that we hear about, you know, the frontal lobe, parietal lobe, temporal lobe, occipital lobe. 
and some we don't hear about that often, like the insula. And then there are networks that involve different regions from each of these lobes that communicate more with each other than they do other parts of the brain. And that can help us cluster them into these, what we call large scale cognitive networks. And the signals they send within the network are oscillatory, meaning that they occur at specific frequencies, which we can then measure. We can record the electric potential for either you know, through the scalp using an electroencephalogram or EEG. We can do it invasively with electrodes we implant in the brain. We can look at it by looking at how much oxygen is being used by each region at a specific time. That's functional MRI. And we've established by looking at the brains of people who are resting or not actively involved in a task, there's something like 17 separate networks that deal with things like memory, attention, movement, you know, vision, hearing, even things like thinking about yourself or what have you. And that number changes depending on who you talk to, but there's still these several networks. And we're beginning to learn about mental health conditions is that the normal pattern of network activity is disrupted. So for example, in depression, the thought is that the networks involved with regulation of emotions and problem solving are not working as well. Whereas the networks involved with self-referential thought or introspection or focus on the self might be on overdrive. And that imbalance might explain some of the symptoms. And there's several levels more, too, of this, by the way. So we often hear about depression being referred to as a chemical imbalance of neurotransmitters in the brain. Mm -hmm. And that's not wrong, per se. We do know that there is an abnormality in how, for example, serotonin, which is one of the neurotransmitters we hear about all the time, is, is working inside the synapse in the brain. It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. We don't know which comes first. We don't know whether the chemical imbalance leads to the electrical imbalance or vice versa. We just know that they're associated with each other. And we know that by, you know, increasing the amount of serotonin that's available at the synapse by giving, you know, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs like fluoxetine, which is Prozac, that can help with some of the symptoms of depression. And we know that when we disrupt some of the abnormal brain activity, that can also help. Uh, there's molecular level effects too, like long-term changes in how certain genes that, you know, are involved with the structure and functions of brain cells and the synapses that connect them, changes in how those genes are transcribed and regulated. Uh, and then of course, there's larger factors too, like the predominant model right now is the biosocial, biopsychosocial model, which is an intersection of factors from yourself, like, you know, your genetic predisposition, overall health, um, factors from psychology, like attitudes, biases, self-esteem, and then uh, social factors like interpersonal relations. And all these things come together to cause something like depression. So really at every level, we, we can find, you know, factors that are associated, but we haven't really honed in on a specific cause for these things yet. We just know that there's these interactions of factors at all these levels uh, that lead to the symptoms of depression or other mental health conditions. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's quite interesting, especially because I know at least from science classes or just in general, like people often tell you that like depression is like more of a like chemical imbalance in the brain. Whereas I think what you shared it's more of a holistic kind of like interpretation in terms of 
there can be a lot of different side effects and we're kind of unaware of, or sorry, not side effects, but a lot of different effects and possible reasons and mechanisms for why this is happening in the brain. And I think that's really interesting because it kind of brings in a lot of other factors. And it's all connected. Yeah. There, nothing exists in a vacuum. And I think in, you know, and it depends on, on what you're trying to, how you're trying to approach the problem. If, if you're someone who researches medicines, you know, drugs, and you're trying to develop a drug for depression, well, the easiest targets for drugs are, you know, they're, after all, they're just chemicals. It's other chemicals. It's finding a receptor that a drug can bind to, to change, you know, the concentration of some other chemical in the brain. That's really how all drugs work. And in the case of depression, we know that that's true for, you know, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. We know that they can help. But the flip side is that they don't help everybody. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people for whom they absolutely don't work and they can cause a ton of really irritating side effects. And so you have to dig a little deeper. What is the underlying cause of that chemical imbalance? And that leads us to, you know, the network theories of depression what leads to those changes is, you know, anybody's guess still. And, and that's what we're actively working on. But none of these things exist in a vacuum. That's that's my point here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, something else that I was interested in is I know that, like you mentioned, mental health has been – mental health is part of being human. And mental health disorders and stuff like that has been around for forever. And I think – Previously, there was a lot of stigma around mental health, and I know also around electroconvulsive therapy, which is kind of similar to like what deep brain stimulation is, but I know it's now it's a lot. There's a lot more uh, studies around it and stuff like that and different like ethical procedures, but I was wondering how you think the new research on deep brain stimulation that's being done will influence stigma around mental health. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you brought up, you know, the the stigma aspect of it. I think that's one of the main factors that that makes treating mental illness very very difficult. We can't treat people if if we can't get a hold of them. And and the stigma of seeking help for some of these things is what prevents a lot of patients from coming in to see a therapist or or a doctor in the first place. So I think it's really important to break that down whenever we can in whatever way we can. Unfortunately, some of these interventions for for mental health have a huge stigma attached to them, unfortunately, because of, I could say, maybe the indiscriminate and and sometimes inappropriate use of technology such as ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, Um, you know, which really is, uh, is, it's a very crude, but sometimes very effective treatment where you deliver a, a very large current through the brain, really through the skin on the sides of the head in a way that you're triggering a seizure. And you do this under general anesthesia so that the patient doesn't start flailing like a seizure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea is to, uh, to really just crudely reboot all of the activity within the brain. And there's a potential for a lot of side effects, you know, memory loss, personality changes, but it still is in use today. And the reason it's in use is because it can be incredibly effective at treating really treatment refractory mental disorders. And why is that? I think 
you have to think about why it's effective in terms of getting down to the mechanism. It's kind of like using a bulldozer to iron a shirt, whereas something like deep brain stimulation or, or other types of therapies we work on, instead of using you know a, a bulldozer, you can actually get in there with an iron and work out those very specific creases that make a shirt look wrinkled. But at the end of the day, you're still altering how electrical activity works in the brain. So I think we're up against a big stigma in using some of these therapies, you know, to, to work on some of these disorders because of the past. But our experience in using deep brain stimulation for non-psychiatric illness, such as Parkinson's disease and tremor, I think is helping to break down some of that stigma and, and allow us to kind of move further in, in expanding the indications for psychiatric treatment. And you had mentioned kind of some of the newer, newer research in, in some of these therapies. And I just want to point out two things. So in all branches of medicine, we're finding that individual patients have different physiologies that require individualized treatment. For example, cancer. We're spending a great deal of time and energy trying to learn about how individual patients' cancer cells are different than other patients. And this has led to all sorts of personalized therapies that more effectively target a patient-specific disease. So why should the brain be any different? It's mm -hmm. kind of silly to think that any two brains work in exactly the same way. So that might be why, for example, antidepressant medications don't work as well for some people as others. So we're finding that instead of picking one specific target for, let's say, deep brain stimulation, like we do in, in Parkinson's disease, it might be the case that each patient has a different target that might work better than others. And that's where network-based targeting comes in. So what if we could understand exactly how a patient's brain processes information differently than another patient and then identify the best place within that specific brain to intervene on a specific disorder? So we're starting to develop protocols where we look at each individual patient's brain anatomy and brain function, sometimes non-invasively with fMRI and EEG, and sometimes invasively with these temporary electrodes that we normally would use to find where a seizure patient's seizures are coming from. And then we try to determine where the abnormal activity is originating from, which might be different from one patient to the next. So in that way, we're making these treatments much more personalized and specific. And then the other thing I want to talk about uh, mm. that I think is really exciting is a concept called responsive neurostimulation. And this is a technology we use currently to treat seizures, where a sophisticated computer detects a specific activity pattern in the brain using one part of an implanted electrode, and then using a different part of the electrode, it delivers a small burst of current that disrupts that pattern. So it's obvious that, you know, that could help with seizures by triggering a little shock, if you will, as soon as the computer detects a seizure and staying off all other times. But what if we could detect things like a mood change or a craving for drugs or alcohol or a psychotic episode? And what if we could send an impulse that stops that pattern from becoming a behavior before it's even noticed consciously? So two incredible examples of that. You know, for example, the paper that I know you and I have talked about before is, uh, is where a patient with really treatment refractory depression was able to be brought in and have some of these electrodes temporarily implanted and have their specific type of depression analyzed 
from an intracranial perspective, so within the brain, and using responsive neurostimulation, a specific type of stimulation was designed that could actually stop that patient's depression right in its tracks. And it was incredibly effective. And the other example I can think of is a trial that my colleagues are doing for binge eating disorder, where two patients shared some of the things, some of the foods that they often got debilitating cravings for. And whenever they got those cravings, they couldn't help but to, you know, to, to have some of that food. And what this group was able to do was identify what that craving looked like specifically in the reward center of the brain, such that when the computer detected that craving, it could deliver an impulse and stop that craving from, first of all, even being consciously noticed, but second of all, stop it from becoming a behavior and therefore kind of break this cycle. So, so these two concepts, both network-based targeting and, and, and then closed loop or responsive stimulation, I think are the future in, in adapting some of these technologies to be used in mental health. Yeah, that's really fascinating, fascinating, especially with the response type stimulation, because that seems that like it's directly changing those those cravings or those urges so that you kind of change the habit almost or immediately without even like noticing it consciously. Exactly. And, and, and DBS, I should mention is when it's always on, it's not without side effects, you know, so these are not silver bullets, you know, DBS, uh, depending on where the, the current is going can cause motor and sensory side effects. It can even cause behavioral side effects. So the benefit of a strategy such as responsive neurostimulation is that the stimulation only is delivered when it's needed. And when someone is not having a, a craving or, you know, an episode of something coming on, then it's off and it's not around to trigger some of these side effects. So it's really powerful. Oh, wow. That is interesting. Uh, looking and comparing those side effects. Also, I was wondering who... Who is deep brain stimulation intended to help and how accessible is it to those people? I know there's a lot of clinical studies happening right now, but in the future, maybe how accessible do you see it being? Yeah, that's a great question. So we talked about how deep brain stimulation has side effects, but the important thing to remember is it not only has side effects, but there is some risk involved with it. So it is an invasive procedure where mm -hmm. we do have to take someone to the operating room and put them under anesthesia and, you know, open a, an incision on their head and drill a hole in their skull and implant a physical electrode into their brain. And that can cause a stroke that can cause bleeding within the brain. We can give someone an infection. And of course, these things are, are very, you know, there's a very low risk of these things happening on the order of one to 2%. Um, sometimes even less for things like causing bleeding within the brain. But when you compare it to the risk of going to a therapist, I mean, that, that's a huge difference, right? What's the worst yeah. that could happen if you go to a therapist? I mean, really not that much, right? Uh, you know, when you take a pill, like an antidepressant, sure, there are side effects, but nothing is immediately really a deadly side effect that you can think of from taking an antidepressant. Of course, there's an FDA black box warning, you know, there's, there's nuances to all of this, but, but really there's not the risk of causing a stroke. And so 
you know, the way we have to think about these, these new interventions, these surgical therapies, is there really a, um, I don't want to, I hesitate to use the word last resort, but they are reserved for the patients who are most refractory to, to other treatments. So people who have really exhausted all that psychiatry and, and neurology has to offer in terms of all the medications, all of the different types of, of psychotherapy that are available. And there's not much else that can be done for these people to prevent worsening psychiatric disease or something like suicide, which unfortunately is the, the end result of, of untreated mental illness for far too many people. So deep brain stimulation and other surgical therapy, regardless of whether you're doing it for Parkinson's disease or tremor or something like, you know, Tourette syndrome or OCD, it should be reserved for the patients who um, can benefit from it, but also patients who have received very little benefit from anything else and are nearing the end of the road of their treatment options because there is some risk involved. Now, we're making it safer and safer every day, and um, many researchers in the field are, are arguing for some of these therapies to be used a little bit earlier because it turns out they can prevent a lot of the negative consequences of being on some of these medications for a very long time. And if we get to some of these patients earlier with a, a quick and safe intervention, it might be worth taking on that additional little bit of risk because it can save, you know, sometimes decades worth of anguish. So that's a, that's a currently hotly debated topic. But, but right now, these interventions are, are reserved for people who have exhausted other types of therapy. Yeah, that makes sense. Access is a different question. You know, DBS is currently approved for Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, and dystonia, which are all motor symptoms, or I should say movement disorders and epilepsy, so seizures that are uncontrolled by medications. And there is an exemption for obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. All of the other indications that we've talked about, like addiction, chronic pain, um, PTSD, binge eating disorder, these are all investigational. And right now, if you have one of the five conditions that it's approved for, it's, you know, it's fairly accessible, provided, of course, that you have insurance that can pay for it or have the means to pay for it on your own and have the ability to get to a, a center that offers it, then, you know, it's fairly accessible. Uh, unfortunately, if you have a mental health condition, uh, you'd have to be involved in a clinical trial in order to have access to this kind of therapy. And I can foresee a future where, you know, even though many of these things may have been proven to be very effective, they, they can unfortunately be cost prohibitive for a lot of patients. And so, Aside from just understanding how and why these things work, we need to make sure we're working on ways to make them accessible to to more and more patients who might need them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess as we close, I just wanted to ask one more question, which is kind of after our whole conversation today, I was wondering what you think is the most challenging aspect of treating mental illness and mental illnesses today in today's society? Oh, there's so many challenges. You know, we've talked about access in terms of cost and geography and even biases. Uh, you know, many of the, the theories that people used to treat these conditions were, were originally derived from populations that don't necessarily reflect the populations in this country today. 
and there's all sorts of disparities in how mental health is is, is viewed in terms of race and gender, you know, and uh, and other other kinds of ways that people are different. So that's a huge problem. Stigma is a huge problem, as we've talked about. Many people still think that seeking help is a sign of weakness, and and we know it's not. Other challenging things are, for example, some of these treatments that are are really poor treatments, and they you know, it's kind of a toss up whether or not some of these drugs are going to help you. Uh, And there are a ton of side effects that can be quite harmful. And then beyond that, it's the factors that we we started off talking about. So understanding how the brain works and and what these diseases do to the brain is, is is a huge challenge, because how can we really effectively treat what we don't understand? We do it anyway, and we learn from that. But I think learning more about how these networks work both in the normal and the uh, the abnormal brain i think that's 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 a huge challenge going forward yeah totally well thank you so much for this really insightful conversation it's been really really interesting i was wondering if you have anything else you want to share yeah i think two other things that 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 i want to kind of put out there there are a lot of other ways that neurologists and psychiatrists and neuroscientists are working on treating mental health disorders. And they're some of the lowest tech things around. So for example, the power of meditation, you know, many different cultures around the world have known about meditation for thousands of years, but we're just starting to look into how it works and how it might confer the benefits. For example, positive effects on memory, mood, executive function, reasoning, lot of studies showing that there are actual differences in the structure and function of the brains of people who meditate in terms of attention regulation, emotional regulation, self-awareness. Therapists have long recommended medication as a way to help patients suffering from mental health conditions to relax, but we're just now discovering that there may be an actual biological basis to how this works. And I think we're going to see a lot more in the future about its use in all the conditions we talked about. And then the other thing that I think is really going to revolutionize the field of mental health is it's this idea that psychedelic medicines might be used as adjuncts to mm-hmm. therapy to treat conditions like depression. And there is a massive, massive societal stigma because of, you know, how these, these medicines or, or you can call them drugs are portrayed. You know, there are a ton of research, even beginning when scientists began to learn about these compounds in the fifties and sixties about how they can, when, it, when, when it combined with guided therapy sessions can really result in sustained lasting improvement in things like depression and alcohol addiction. And, you know, a lot of this research was suppressed when all of these compounds were made illegal, but there's a resurgence in research about how they work and how they might be helpful. And actually ketamine, which is a dissociative agent, uh, was approved for treatment resistant depression in 2022. Mm-hmm. And many people, for example, after just one dose of ketamine have reported improvement, significant improvement in depression that lasts up to you know months and years. And uh, we have no idea why this is, but we are really looking into how that, that specific state that some of these compounds can create, that, that psychedelic state might do more than, you know, what popular culture kind of shows it to do. It really could help reset some of this pathologic brain activity in a way that can have a lasting effect on some of these conditions. And of course, I want to emphasize that doesn't mean everyone should, you know, take these drugs willy-nilly. There's obviously risks and 
especially for children and young adults whose brains are still developing or people with other comorbidities, but the possibility that they might one day help treat mental illness in a way that's accessible and cost-effective, it's really intriguing. And uh, it's also intriguing that we might be getting closer to understanding how these things actually do the things that they do. Yeah. I think those are two amazing things to bring up because I, well, one, I wasn't really thinking about meditation. I was kind of like just thinking about, you know, all the sciencey, like nitty gritty parts. But once you brought up meditation, uh, it really, I, I started to think, oh yeah, like that makes sense. I mean, I know my brother, my parents, they've all like kind of gotten into meditation and always tell me about all the positive side effects that um, it has done for them or creating a good like morning routine with meditation and how it's really helped helped them. So I think that's a really interesting thing. Also something that a lot of people can just start doing to try to help better their mental health on their own without you know much cost or anything like that. And then I think your second point was also really interesting because I've also um, heard about this too and heard about studies that more studies that are being done right now on like psychedelic drugs and stuff like that and how they can be used to treat different mental health disorders. Or also in in my AP Psych class last year, we talked a little bit about this and watched one of the documentaries on Netflix, which I thought was super compelling and really interesting. So I'm really glad you brought that up. It was really cool. Yeah, I think you know the it's a it's a very bright future. I know a lot of a lot of people suffering from these things. You know, it can really seem hopeless, but you know, we really have a, a very wide and, and bright horizon ahead of us in, in terms of different ways to, to treat some of these these illnesses. And I think as a society, we're coming around to understanding how both, you know, the highest of technologies can help, but also some of like the, the lowest tech things we can do, like um, exercise is something I didn't even mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been shown to be incredibly effective in, in a lot of mental health conditions, uh, meditation and, you know, psychedelics. That's That's in the future, but as we learn more and more about this, I think the possibilities really open up for 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 patients who might be at the end of the line with with currently accepted therapies. And I think we're going to see a lot more exciting things come out of this field in the future. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and having this amazing conversation. It was really awesome. It was a pleasure, Ali. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I hope everyone enjoyed this episode and the wonderful interview. My sexual assault resource page is linked in the description box at the end of every episode and in the podcast description. There you'll be able to find sexual violence definitions, legislation, and resources to help with prevention and recovery. You can also find some sources to learn about how to help and support others. And if anyone is in need of help right now, the RAIN Sexual Assault and Abuse and Sexual Violence National Hotline is 800-656-4673. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you continue to come along this healing journey with me. Bye!